Welcome to the Wraparound Love Podcast, where you will hear the very difficult stories behind why people make the choices that they do. As we share these stories, you will be inspired by how the love of God transformed each person's life when individual Christians chose to consistently engage by simply being someone who gave what we call wraparound love. Welcome to the Wraparound Love Podcast. This is episode five. My name is Janine Wagner, and I'm here with my friend, Barbara Robinson. Barbara, how are you doing today? I'm good, Janine. It's good. So it's our Sunday afternoon ritual. After you've gone to church and I've gone to church, we come and hang out. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. So before we get into um, the meat of the episode today, this, as of the recording of this episode, we've released the first episode, kind of a pre-release to some friends and that type of thing. And I think we've had a pretty decent response. Barbara, as you've read people's comments and things like that, what has struck you about how people are responding to your story? There are people who I know who are excited about the podcast. There are people who I know who I wouldn't think would be excited. Then there are people who don't even know me who are engaging with me on the Facebook page. And we're just talking back and forth. I'm sharing some things with them that I've done as a youth and they're sharing things with me. I never thought that anybody else besides me and my cousin tried dog biscuits before as kids, but... (laughs) There has been somebody, never thought other people would make dinners out of dirt and (laughs) stuff that they used from outside as a kid. Um, I kind of thought that was just something we did. But as I said, you, you begin to see how much we really are alike. Yeah. So if you want to join in that conversation, and so what Barbara's referring to is one of our posts on Instagram and Facebook, Barbara shared some of her favorite memories and favorite things. And one was making mud pies and eating dog biscuits. And some different people responded saying they did the same thing. So amazing. Yeah. Amazing. (laughs) And really those dog biscuits really smell good. But did they taste good? No. No, they did not taste good. Dog biscuits, they, they still smell good. And dog food still smells good. But yeah. No, not a good taste. No. So if you want to join in the conversation with Barbara and with me on Facebook and Instagram, it's the Wraparound Love Movement, and you can find us there. So as we were getting ready for the podcast today, so this is just kind of typical Barbara, classic, my experience going out to lunch with Barbara, being with Barbara, is she'll get a text or a phone call from someone and she'll be like, hold on a second. And so everything stops. And so someone has texted or called her and needed some help. And Barbara, do you want to just share uh, without kind of giving anything away? This phone call that you just had is very typical of my experience when I'm around you, the kind of calls and texts you get. Got a text, someone asking to pray for um, their family member because feel like they're going to die soon. And I'm like, I didn't want to respond in a text. I, I wanted to call back and find out exactly what's going on. 
And why are they suicidal? Do they think somebody's trying to kill them? Um, what can we do? Where can we pray? How can we help them? And I spoke with the person and they're going to give me the information. And once I'm done, I'm going to call and talk to this individual and work with them on choosing a better life and getting away from those thoughts. Because again, those are thoughts of the enemy. He will trick you into losing your life when you become one of his targets. For me, I I work at a church, so it's not uncommon for me to have had conversations with people who are suicidal. I've gone to hospitals with people, that type of thing. That's not uncommon in my world. But the idea of somebody thinking that someone is going to kill them other than they're thinking that because they're having some kind of mental health breakdown is is not normal for me. So how normal is it for you to have the experience of somebody genuinely thinking someone is going to try to kill them? Where I come from, this should not be a normal thought. This should not be normal for children to grow up, but it has became the norm due to gun and gang violence in North Omaha. Today is the third, and we have had Two homicides already. The 3rd of January. Yes, the 3rd of January, 2021. And we have had two homicides already with two other people being shot. And you have to think of how many of their friends were around, how many of the people um, hung with them, and who probably feel like whoever killed them are going to come and kill me. It has always been a bother because... People that I have grew up with, people that I know are children or their children. Children are killing each other. And the parents probably went to the same school together. The children probably went to the same school together. And then, yeah, it's a gang issue, but it's also a weapon of Satan. It's a warfare that's going on and is an assignment against the um, young men in our community. And I, I, I so desperately want to do something to change it. So if I got to conversate, pray, go meet, go talk to help connect with resources, whatever I have to do. And that's, I think, where, you know, I've known you since you've been a community leader fighting this. And there was a time, and we'll get into that in future episodes, where you really were one of the main leaders, and then for different reasons, you no longer are, but people are still trusting you and reaching out to you. And I think that trust that you have built with the community itself, not necessarily that you're have a specific position, but you've built trust with the people in your community. Talk a little bit about why you think that is. I live in the community. I was born and raised in the community in which I serve. I'm not somebody that reads about it, I'm somebody that sits high and looks low. I'm not somebody that makes decisions for people in our community and the decisions don't affect me personally. Um, my children are raised in this community just because I'm choosing to do this, be on this side of the fence, doesn't mean that my children are on this side of the fence. My children are right in the madness, in the in the wilderness right now as we speak. I have um, sons in prison. 
I have a brother who is in a wheelchair from being shot. My stepfather is shot. My other brother was murdered um, by a gun. I know my community and I want to help my community because helping my community helps me and it helps my next generation from my family, from my from my womb, from who I am. It helps. It changes the generation of my family. I don't want to keep passing on generational curses. I want to break them in not only my family, but my neighbor's family, my friend's family. I want to see generational blessings. I'm going in the community. And the only way that that can be done is if somebody from the community changes and speaks up for the community. And then once they get into a position that they don't forget about the community. Yeah. So I know the passion you have for your community. And I I know there were years that what drove you for that was feeling like you had contributed to the downfall of your community by being part of a gang, by being a drug addict, all of those things. But now in addition to that, I do think a big motivate motivator for you, because in, in those years, your kids were maybe early 20s down to middle school, and then you had some younger kids. Mm-hmm. Now your middle school kids are, you have Charles, who was a middle schooler when this started, is in jail for murder. Mm-hmm. Chaynesha and Chaylesha are struggling. Yes. So now you're experiencing that even though you did change, even when they were younger, There's still consequences for their lives. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, that part of your life where you were raising kids and you were a drug addict and a gang member, and you've got one eye kind of maybe looking back at your mom, thinking about how she raised you and then realizing you're doing the same thing with your own kids And maybe in some ways they didn't have a grandma to protect them. Just kind of just respond maybe a little bit to what I just said. How how do you reflect on all of that now? When I grew up, I had my grandmother who, when my mother would leave me at home or the lights got shut off or the gas got shut off or there was no Christmas presents, my grandmother filled in that void or I could go and live with my grandmother and be safe. And I always used to say, I'm not going to ever do what my mom do. I'm not going to ever smoke cigarettes. I'm not going to ever shoot drugs in my arm, be an IV drug user. But I grew up so angry because of what she did, even though I had the love of my grandmother, that I joined the gang. And because of what my grandmother taught me, I couldn't do what the gang was doing unless I'm getting intoxicated. And I'm using drugs. And along with using drugs and having sex, as kids are coming. I'm having one kid, then I'm having another kid and another kid. Before I knew it, I'm at home with five kids living in an apartment that costs $19 a month. I'm getting $506 a month from ADC, um, probably about four or $500 in food stamps. And instead of selling the drug now, I'm using the drug myself. And my children are just running around in the house. 
And I thought as long as I kept my children in the house and kept them going to school, that they would be safe. They wasn't. Uh, My children went through molestation. They went through hunger, neglect. They didn't get to play outside like the other kids. They didn't get a mom. I was a robot. I stayed up all night getting high. I'd get them up in the morning and get them ready for daycare or get them off to school. And then sometimes when they come home, either I would be there or my son would be there, my oldest son, whose birthday is tomorrow and he'll be 32 and he would have to be the parent. And then when I came home intoxicated, high, drunk, he would have to nurse me back to health. He would have to bring water, food to my room. Meanwhile, washing clothes and watching his brothers and sisters. He never had a childhood, ever. When you were in the middle of that lifestyle, would you think about what you were doing to your kids? Is that part of what fueled the drinking and the drug using is like you couldn't deal with it? Like, what was that like? Or were you just a robot, as you said? I was too busy thinking of the hurt that I had as a kid. I was busy thinking about that I was hurt, that my mother now has died of an overdose at the age of 36 years old. She died. She OD'd and she verbally, mentally, and physically abused me. And she's gone. And I didn't like her. And I'm angry with her. And it's her fault that I'm using drugs. It's her fault. And at least I'm taking care of my own kids. At least my kids are in my house. At least my kids are in my house. But they were (laughs) in a bad predicament. They were (laughs) being raised by a kid. Children being raised by children is idle minds, which is, we know, a devil's workshop. I think of my oldest son, how smart he was. My oldest daughter, Chanisha, how smart she was and how it all just went down the drain right along with their childhood. They did not have a childhood. And the reason they didn't have a childhood is because their mother was a crack addict, alcoholic. And that mother is me. How do you work through forgiving yourself for that? I don't know how. I was so angry. I went to um, I went to jail. I ended up going to this place called Restored Hope. I met Pastor Patton, Pastor Bruce Williams. They incorporated the 12 step with scriptures and they showed me how to recognize the devil and how to recognize God. And one day I did a fifth step with Pastor Pat. I told everything because I really, really wanted to be changed. Everything I could think of, uh, my childhood, my parenting, everything. And then I said, my mother never liked me. She asked me why. And I just broke. And when I cried, it's like something broke off me. It's like a feeling that I had been having all my life. Feeling like my mom didn't like me. And the feeling just, it, it just broke. And it wasn't that she didn't like me. It was that she knew that I was just like her and she wanted to stop it, but she didn't know how. And I wouldn't listen to nothing she said because who is she? She's just an IV drug user. She's an addict. But I was an addict at the age of 14. Once I accepted that, then I was able to accept 
responsibility for my own drug use. No, that wasn't the last time that I used, but that was the last time that I blamed her for my drug use. You know, as you share that part of the story, I think a lot of parents and a lot of adults spend and waste time thinking about what they missed out on or what their parents did to them. And it really keeps us from being present for our own kids. I, I think if you if you took the drug addiction and all of that away, a lot of people can relate to that if we can hear and, and be honest with ourselves, that we spend a lot of time focusing on what other people have done to us. And it just prevents us from living our life. You know, that's, I think, a, a fear that... You know, I just have for parents, for my own kids. It's like the stuff that we hang on to in our lives that we cannot let go of keeps us from really having the destiny that we believe that God has for our lives. And so I hope the listeners hear that. And it's not just being a drug addict. It's it's really holding on to bitterness and anger and not being willing to release that to God, to forgive the other person. And ultimately that consumes our lives. What you do is you pass it down because I passed it down. I have children who won't forgive because they were molested. So they hold that ought in some way against me because if I had been a better mom, they wouldn't have been molested. And that's true. And so knowing your kids, to me, that's the tragedy because they are stuck because they are defining their lives by that. Yes. And then others are drinking their self or using drugs the same as I was. It's a generational curse and it must be broken. And I can stop it with me. I have I have eight children. I have two that were born together, three that were born together, then one by himself, then another one, then another one. So I have like children in seasons, but they all came in different seasons of my life. And you can tell in my, you could tell in how they are in my parenting to them and which one received the curses and which ones are receiving the blessing. And I am trying so hard to break the generational curses off the older ones, but I can only want it and I can only pray for it. They have to set their self free. They have to receive God. They have to trust in him the same way that I did in order to be set free. I don't hold myself hostage to that anymore. I accept responsibility for their childhood. I accept that. But I also accept the fact that they have to accept responsibility for their adulthood. And I am here to support them, to get them through. They can sit and tell me we can cry whatever it takes. And that is the only way that it's not going to trickle down to their children is if they get it out. So I know... I don't know the older two boys, but I know Charles, Chanisha, Chalisha, Caleb, and then the girls, of course. And so when I met Charles, Chanisha, Chalisha, they were all middle schoolers. Mm-hmm. And they were and are the sweetest kids. They look out for their younger siblings. 
They care about each other. And and so I would spend time with you guys every week at church. I'd come and do Sunday school. So I taught them Sunday school for like a year. But I saw how they how they interacted with each other and they were kind to each other. And I think what makes me sad now for where they are is that I saw the hope in their eyes that their life could be different. They're, they believed that at that time. And I think that generational pressure, which we're going to talk more about their individual lives in a few episodes, but as they got into high school and got the pressure living in North Omaha, being Barbara Robinson's children, the pressure to be in a gang, all of those things became, that's too much for a young person to take. So I always tell people, stop telling my kids that they are just like how I used to be. I I was a gang banging crack addict stop telling them that why can't they be who i am now who i'm trying to be now why can't they follow who i'm following now yeah why can't they suit up for the army that i'm in now why are you speaking death over my children but they had so much pressure spiritual pressure pressure from people and even from people who's supposed to help you know i i just think about going to the schools in North Omaha. And if your kids decided to be a Christian and, and not be part of the gang, what, what would have happened to them? What would have that have been like? <laughs> yeah. So it's just, it's, it's so much pressure on them. But I want to talk for a little bit about that. So you lost your kids in foster care. Did, did that happen more than once or just one time? Yeah. First time I had an encounter with foster care was when Chaylesha was born and she tested positive for crack. So they took Chaylesha, but they allowed the older four to stay home. And then Chaylesha ended up coming home a few months later. How does that feel as a mom? You've carried I'll, this baby I'll and she's taken this. away at birth. I was pregnant with Chaylesha, and I was having complications. I kept dehydrating. And the OB doctor said to me, we tested you, and you are testing positive for crack. And if you continue to test positive for crack, we will have to call Child Protective Service on you. So they gave you a chance. They let you know. And at that time, Child Protective Service was rarely heard of. It was rarely heard of. This is 21 years ago. My daughter was, well, 22 because I was pregnant with her. And I'm like, okay. So I would get high and I would drink vinegar water. And vinegar water dehydrates you. Vinegar water and tea, it dehydrates you. I didn't know that. So she was supposed to be born in September, August 28th. I'm getting high all night long. And I go to use the bathroom and my water breaks. I'm like, oh my God. So I hide the drugs that I was getting high off of. And I go in the hospital. They give me a C-section. And I'm like, oh, okay, they didn't find the drugs. Everything is good. And then the next day, a police officer walks in my room and gives me a um, child neglect and abuse ticket. And they tell me that I can no longer take my baby from out of the baby nursery and that um, Child Protective Service will be placing her. I was devastated. When it was time for me to be released, as I was leaving out the door, there was a woman coming in. And I knew then that that was the woman that was taking my baby home. I went home and I finished getting high 
off the drugs. And it wasn't until I didn't have any more drugs that it really started hitting me. I couldn't numb nothing anymore. Now I have to feel it. And um, my kids come home and they're, where's my sister? And everybody's asking, where's my baby? Where's your baby? Oh, she's still at the hospital. She's having some issues, so she's still in the hospital. This is what I'm telling everybody. But she has, she's with another family. I'm at home, breast leaking, bleeding, stomach hurting. And one of the treasures of coming home and having those things happen to your body is that you have the baby. They're with you. And I didn't ever. That was the eeriest feeling. It was the eeriest feeling. And eventually I had to start telling the truth. And I set up visits for my baby to come to my house. She'd come. I had her in August. And by December, she was back home. And they closed my case. Then maybe about a year later, maybe two years later, my oldest son turned 13. And when he turned 13, I took it as a freedom for me. Now I could leave him at home overnight with the kids. And so I would leave and I would say, I'm just going to take a little bit of the food stamps and sell them to get some drugs. So you would tell your kids that? like they just... I would say it to myself. Oh, okay. I would tell them that. I tell my kids I'm going to the grocery store. But I say to myself that I'm just going to get high just a little bit. Then I'll go to the store and come home. I end up using up all the food stamps, coming home with nothing. If my kids ask me about it, I would... Don't ask me no questions. I'm grown, you know, and I'm going to go to the store tomorrow, you know, until they eventually just didn't ask. And somehow I would feed them or I had friends that would feed them. Uh, I remember one time they ate beans and rice for like a week straight. That's it. Just beans and rice. So eventually all of your kids ended up in foster care. Yeah, I would tell my kids to pray for me. And I would say pray because God answers prayers. And I would tell them, if I don't come back, I walked out the door one day and I said, if I don't come back, call for help because I need help. I don't know why I said that to my kids because I didn't want them to do that. But I came home, my kids wasn't there. So I asked my neighbors and they said they saw my kids leaving in a police car. And I don't know how I ended up finding out but my kids ended up in a place called kids college over in bellevue somewhere and um that was the first time they were removed they came home probably about three or four months later stayed home for about three months and they all went back So we are going to pause here, and we know this is a tough place to stop. But next week, you are going to hear the amazing story of how Barbara became the first person in the state of Nebraska to have her rights fully restored after they were terminated. We cannot wait to share that with you. And from that story begins the amazing journey of her life being transformed by God through other people who brought wraparound love to her and her family. 